is reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 80. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbours were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, of, of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come, to his, he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And as the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Amen. Good evening. Welcome to Christchurch Mayfair. It's lovely to have you here. My name is Phil. I'm on the staff here. If we haven't yet met, I hope that you're able to stay around afterwards. Tonight's been a bit different from our usual carol services. I've enjoyed it. I hope you have. If you have, do let the musicians know. Um, and we might even do it again next year. But t- right now, we're going to look at the reading that we, uh, we've just had from Luke's Gospel and spend a few minutes thinking together about Christmas. So if you want to turn that up, we'll pray and then we'll get to work. Father God, we are in need of hope. And so we pray that as we look at your word together now, that you would help us to understand your hope. That we might live lives that are confident and that we might have courage to proclaim the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It is Christmas time, if you haven't noticed. 
Christmas is almost here. Uh, the lights in Oxford Street are up. They have been since August, but uh, they're up. Uh, the traditional family occasions have all started to happen, you know, gathering around the computer screen to watch the John Lewis Christmas ad. It's, it's almost here. It's a familiar warming time of year. We love it. It's a time when everybody feels the warmth and the light of hope again. As we talk about Christmas, as we look forward to time off work, time eating and drinking, time with family and friends. But outside, I think the world looks a bit darker and bleaker than it has for a long time, if I'm honest. When we look outside at our world, we see a bit of a mess this Christmas. Nowhere is safe, it turns out, from the terrorist threats. Uh, When I wrote this talk, Paris was in our minds. It turns out... London isn't safe last night. America had another terrorist atrocity this week. Everywhere, it seems, is being hit. The the meteorologists say that this last November that we've just endured is the darkest for 86 years. I kid you not, there have been 38 hours of sunshine, which is about 37 more than I saw. It has been the darkest on record. And actually, that seems pretty appropriate As we talk about Christmas and as we light lights, the world looks bleak and the world looks dark. Now, Advent is the, is the time of year when we, we talk about waiting. It comes from the word adveniens, uh, coming to. It's when we wait for, for God's coming at Christmas. But this year, as we, as we look at Advent, we are those who I guess would know verse 79 of our passage that we long for a light to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Advent is a time of waiting, and this year, perhaps more than ever, we are desperately waiting for some hope. What has Christmas, the Christian Christmas, got to offer? There are lots of competing Christmases out there now. Uh, there There have always been festivals at winter. What has the Christian Christmas got to offer us? Now, I'm a traditionalist, so at Advent, I like an Advent calendar. And being a proper traditional Christmas person, an Advent calendar isn't a real Advent calendar unless it has chocolate in it. Lots of chocolate, good chocolate in it. Uh, But you don't work out anything about the hope of Christmas from an Advent calendar. These days, if you go into the shops, you're as likely to find Han Solo, Lear and Chewie as to find Mary, Joseph and Jesus. They're they're useless. But even the the kind of traditional Advent scenes, like um, the one that hopefully will appear in just a moment on the screen, uh, the sort of nativity scene versions of Advent that you get like this, are utterly misleading. I mean, here you go. There's Mary, immaculately groomed, looking serene after just going through childbirth without medical care. And there is her Anglo-Saxon baby Jesus, (laughs) doing what all babies do, sleeping peacefully, looking ruddy-cheeked, and not like he's just... uh, Anyway, let's not go into that. (laughs) And around them, the cleanest farm animals and cleanest shepherds you've ever seen. One of them's even playing the flute. Isn't that just wonderful? And you look at that and you wonder, what on earth could be the relevance of that to the world we live in? You know, what on earth is, to put it bluntly, what has Bethlehem got to say to a world of Bataclan? How can this offer us peace? What on earth is the point in bothering to invite friends to carol services where there'll be a talk? Fine, sing carols, but why bring them to hear a talk about Jesus and Christmas? What has it got to offer? 
Now, look, the truth is, there's an awful lot we don't know about the real nativity. We don't know how hard Mary's labour was. We don't know whether there were any farm animals with them at the time or how clean they were if they were there. But there is a lot we do know. And I want to just spend a few minutes thinking about the, well, the political context, really, of this Bible passage. Because it helps us understand the context into which Zechariah proclaims this message of hope. And it's a whole lot more Syria than we realised. It is not Silent Night, it's Syria. So the local king at this time is a guy called Herod the Great. He, has only, he only rules, he has no real claim to the Jewish throne. He rules because the Romans who invaded in 63 BC have installed him as king. He's utterly hated by everybody. And he, um, he rules through brutality. He's married somebody who's got a better claim to the throne than him to try and legitimise his rule and then instantly realise that's a bad idea because um, they've got a better claim to the throne than him. So what do you do? Well, you kill your wife and then you kill two of your sons just in case. You know, just that's the kind of man he is. Paranoid, wicked and utterly ruthless. And at the time, there's been this sort of growing insurgency against the, the Roman rule. If we look at the map, you'll see... Um, so this is, the, this is the sort of area of Judea, Palestine. And up in the north, you'll see Galilee. Um, and just south of, the, of where it's written Galilee, the, the sixth name down is Nazareth. Just north of Nazareth, four miles away and up on a hill, so you could see it clearly from Nazareth, is the town of Sepphoris. And that's really been the hotbed of the rebellion against the Romans. And in 4 BC, it breaks out into open revolt. And the area is basically full of bandits, of guerrilla warfare against the Romans, and then eventually two entire Roman legions descend on the area to wipe out the rebels. And the Roman governor Varus, to make his point, crucifies 2,000 people in that one village. And this is what Mary looks out on each morning as she plans her wedding. That's the context into which Zachariah says there is hope. See, these are actually words of hope for the darkest world. Not for the nice, neat little Advent scene. Now, of course, there is another context for um, this song of Zachariah. And that's the context within Luke's historical account of the life of Jesus. Before Luke, there's been 400 years of silence. The God who speaks has said nothing for 400 years. But Luke 1 started with God sending the angel Gabriel to appear to Zechariah nine months before uh, this episode. And the angel had told Zechariah that he and his wife, who are now old and can't have children, he's told them, though, that they're going to have a baby boy. And that this baby boy will be the messenger to announce the coming of God. He'll be the precursor, the, the forerunner, the, the light to shine on the coming of God to rescue his people. It's an incredible promise. And although he's a priest, Zechariah, his response to God is, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Don't be ridiculous. A blazing angel standing in front of him, yeah, as if. And so God strikes him dumb. I think actually he strikes him deaf as well, because verse 62, uh, when they're trying to work out what to name the baby, they have to make signs to Zechariah. He can't just hear what they say. That means that after the 400 years of silence, the the context for this is nine months of silence for Zechariah. Nine months brooding in silence. Brooding about his own stupidity. Brooding about his doubting of God. Studying over the Old Testament. 
Now look, as a priest, he would have known and studied the Old Testament until he knew it backwards. Of course, it's Hebrew, so it was written backwards, but he would have known it like, he basically knew it better than you and I know anything. It was his job to teach the people. And yet, he doubted God. Even with a blazing angel standing in front of him, he doubted God. The God who in the Old Testament again and again gives babies to childless people as part of his salvation plan. Why on earth did he doubt God? Now I wonder, I wonder whether he just found it a lot harder, or a lot easier to believe that God is a God who used to do amazing things back then, than to believe that God is a God who does amazing things now. But as he watches the the bump grow in his wife Elizabeth, he has a visual demonstration that the Old Testament is not a history book that tells you about a God who once was. It's a revelation, a declaration of the God who is alive and active today. Not just in Zachariah's day, but in your day and mine. And I wonder if that's not a lesson that a few of us need to learn as well. And now, Zachariah takes his baby boy into his arms and praises God. Look with me uh, down at verse 67 of Luke chapter 1. Verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He's not just praising God. Do you notice he's prophesying by the Holy Spirit? In other words, he's not just saying, God, you're marvelous. He's also speaking things that God has revealed to him. Things about the future, actually. Now, the interesting thing is, John the Baptist is just a baby. He's eight days old. Jesus' death and resurrection are 33 years away. Jesus hasn't even been born yet. And yet, do you notice the tense that he writes in? Verse 68, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised his horn of salvation. He speaks in the past tense about future events. This is Zechariah who doubts the words of a blazing angel nine months before. He's learned his lesson all right. He now knows when God says it, it's so certain, you might as well speak of it in the past tense. That's the God of the Bible. And Zechariah praises God and really he teaches two things, I think, in this, in this song. There are two themes. Firstly, God has sent his mighty saviour. And then God's mighty saviour will deal mercifully with sins. Let's look down. Verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said long ago through his holy prophets, salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, why on earth does he say that when he's holding his eight-day-old baby in his hands? I mean, I know that people think their children are special. I've read the Christmas letters. We know what parents think about their kids. But what is going on here? And we had, um, <laughs> we had a baptism this morning of uh, Sophie Knight, Andy and Vicky Knights. And I mean, it, basically what's going on here is the equivalent of Andy, halfway through the baptism, taking Sophie, um, having the sound desk queued up with the Lion King and thrusting Sophie forward and saying, behold, behold, the end of poverty in the world. Behold, the answer to hunger. We name her Sophie for she is wisdom. And by her wisdom, she shall feed the poor and the hungry and she will 
will bring an end to inequality of the nations. Behold all people. Do carry on. I mean, it would just be a little bit odd. Um, If you want to do that, you can't when it comes to your baptism, you two. Um, Now, Zachariah says this. Zachariah says this because the angel has told him that his baby will be the warm-up act, the precursor, the forerunner, the preparer for the arrival of God. Actually, this song isn't really about John the Baptist, you notice. It's really about the one who will come after John the Baptist, God himself. Do you see in verse 68, God has come. He has come. That's why he's so excited. Now, two things about this rescue, this salvation, this redemption in this section. Firstly, the the Savior is long promised, we see in this first bit. In other words, this this isn't, you know, as if God has just thought of it at the last minute. He's not sat up there in heaven and thinks, you know what, maybe I'll go a bit all out for Christmas this year. Forget the box set and the novelty mug. I'll blow the budget. I'll send my son to redeem them from my sins. That'd be a nice surprise, wouldn't it? (laughs) It's It's not like that. The entire Old Testament is one long unfolding story. It starts with the the death and the misery that you and I, human beings, have brought into God's beautiful world. And then God sets about undoing, reversing what we've done. And it builds on this uh, this guy Abraham, who's, uh, who's mentioned in verse 73. There was an oath, a covenant with Abraham. God promised Abraham, Abraham, I will be your God. I will bless you. And I, I will make you into a great nation. And I'll give you a land, a sort of model of what I'm going to do as I redeem the world. And more than that, though, it's not some sort of narrow, nationalistic, regional thing for one group of people. All people on earth will be blessed through your offspring. You will have a a great, 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 great grandson who will bring an end to the curse of sin and death. And then through the rest of the Old Testament, the promise builds and develops. You, you notice that uh, David is mentioned in verse 69. In 2 Samuel seven fourteen, David was this great king of Israel and he's promised that he'll have a descendant who will reign forever as a king bringing protection and blessing to the people. And then Ezekiel 34, um, the prophet says something confusing. He says, uh, uh, my servant David will shepherd, will lead, will be the king to the people. And then it says, I, God, will rule them. It's just confusing. What's going on? You've got all these promises building up in the Old Testament. Now, we all have our geeky secrets. Let's not pretend. Um, I'm not alone on this, I'm hoping. Otherwise, I'm going to look very stupid. I love jigsaws as a child. As a child, I love jigsaws. Couldn't, it's just one of those things. It's perfectly normal and natural. It's not wrong. It is just different. And uh, um, thankfully, I've grown out of it. I like stamp collecting now. I'm normal. It's fine. I've grown up. But uh, the Old Testament is like a jigsaw puzzle. When you take the individual pieces, they don't make a lot of sense. But as you put more and more of the pieces in, you build up this picture of what God is going to do of how he is going to to redeem the world by sending a divine king, the anointed one, the Christ or the Messiah as we read in our Bibles. And that eventually this Christ, this king will save the world from our sins and our death. And this is why Zachariah is so excited. He understands that the moment that all history, not just Bible history, but all history has been waiting for us, has arrived. In fact, we get that. We split, we split time on BCAD. Or if you want to say BCE, 
A and then CE. It still splits on the same moment in history, the arrival of Jesus Christ. And that's right because he is the one long promised to bring an answer to the death and the sin that ruins our world. So firstly, uh, the saviour is long promised. The second thing you see in this section is that the saviour is mighty. Look at verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. A horn of salvation. Now a few years ago... um, we went on holiday to southern Spain to a little hilltop village and they were having the, the annual village festival which was basically nuts um, but it was good fun and at the end of it there was a little it was quite a little place but they had a bull ring there and I'm I'm not a fan of bullfighting um, and it, having seen it it was a gruesome spectacle but I thought you know I'm here I'd be quite interested just to see you know what is it actually like um, and so we went along and this was not your premier league bullfighting this was kind of um, this was amateur hour and to start with, you know, it wasn't particularly serious. You know, some of the bulls had sort of wonky horns and looked like they'd be more at home in a petting zoo. But progressively, they got more serious. Now, the final bull that came out, the place just hushed. He's about six foot high at the shoulder, sleek black coat, massively muscled. It was like it had been on steroids. The neck was about the size of an oak tree. It had these huge, thick-based horns curving up into really sharp, spear-like points. And it wasn't sort of some lumbering oaf. It was agile. It was powerful. It was snorting with rage. And when it came out and flew across the, the arena, it basically scattered the matadors pretty quickly. And when it slammed into the wooden hoarding at the side, the whole side of the arena shuddered. You know, this was a serious beast. And that's what Jesus is like. Zechariah says that the saviour who God is sending is like a, a massive, brutal, fighting bull. He has a horn of salvation. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Ooh, I'm not sure about that. It doesn't fit with our sort of domesticated view of airbrush Jesus. But the truth is, in a brutal world, you need a strong saviour. In a world where there are real enemies, verse 74, Jesus needs to be a horn of salvation. In a world where you've got Islamic state and where there's a real devil, it is good news. There's nothing to be embarrassed about that we have a horn of salvation. The baby Jesus is also a mighty bull. And he will gore and smash and destroy all wickedness. He will not allow wickedness to have the last word in his universe. And that is good news. But I think it makes us a bit uncomfortable. The, the thought of a, a mighty fighting king. And especially the thought of uh, a mighty redeemer who never gives up power. That doesn't sound, it sounds dangerous to you and me. You know, we're well aware of, uh, of, of so many times in history when the mighty liberator has become the brutal despot. You know, there was a time when Robert Mugabe was seen as a hero for liberating Zimbabwe. It's, you know, you go a few miles north from there. It's, uh, it's interesting watching in Rwanda. In 1994, Paul Kagame was only good news. He brought stability and peace and an end to brutality and has brought prosperity back to that country. But it's starting to get a bit worrying. Freedom of the press is being 
squashed. Political enemies are being silenced. There's, you hope it doesn't happen. You really pray it doesn't happen. But we've seen this story so many times. The great liberator becomes the brutal despot. What makes us think Jesus is any different? Why, why is it good news that Jesus is a brutal horn of salvation? Isn't that just dangerous? Well, it's good news and you can trust this Jesus when you remember how he achieves his salvation. You see, it's not on a battlefield as he sheds the blood of his enemies. This Jesus achieves his salvation on a cross as he submits to his enemies and allows them to put him to death and sheds his own blood. And this Jesus, as he hangs, being tortured to death on a cross, innocent of everything he's been charged with, he prays, not I will have my vengeance, but Father, forgive them. You can trust this Jesus. It is good news that there is a horn of salvation in a dangerous world. It is better news that that horn of salvation is Jesus, the one who gives his life rather than takes life. So Zechariah, he turns now to address his son John, having uh, praised God that God has sent his mighty saviour. He now actually addresses uh, the the boy who will become John the Baptist. And he he talks about how wonderful it is that this mighty saviour will deal mercifully with sinners. Verses 76 to 79. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. When God's mighty saviour comes, he will bring, uh, verse 77, a knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Verse 78, the mighty horn will bring the tender mercy of our Lord and God. See, the truth is, although the first half talks about enemies that need to be got rid of if God's people will live in peace, the most dangerous enemy you and I face, if we want to serve God, if we want to live lives uh, like Jesus, following Jesus, characterized by his love, his compassion, his courage, the most dangerous enemies we face are not external, but internal. It's not Islamic State or Boko Haram or the secularism of, uh, of modern Britain. It's actually my sinful heart that's the biggest problem. That's the thing which will most likely stop me from serving Jesus. And it's the same for all of us. Verse 77 says, He will give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. That great Bible word, sin, it's got an I in the middle for a good reason. See, God made us human beings to to turn outwards, to look outwards, to, to look up and love and serve God and to look out and serve and love other people. But we we turn in on ourselves. Our hearts have a massively strong gravitational pull and we just focus in. We protect ourselves. We serve ourselves. We look after ourselves. And we become warped. It's like an ingrowing toenail. I won't take off my shoe and show you. It's, you know, the, you know it's, just a, it's an ugly, horrible thing. It causes damage. It's, it's not meant to do that. And it doesn't just damage us. It, it damages others when we turn in on ourselves. See, um, 
we're like planets and each of us tries to act like I'm the sun. I'm the center. Everything else should revolve around me. But when you act like you're the sun and everything else should revolve around you, well, we collide and crash and hurt and cause damage to each other. And that's, that is the greatest problem that you and I face. Don't believe me, just wait till Christmas when you get to spend an extended period of time with the people you love the most. And then you'll see <laughs> sin laid bare. <laughs> you see the children arguing about and fighting and stamping about not having my way about what we watch on TV. We haven't seen Frozen enough times. Yes, you have. Uh, you, and uh, his present cost more than mine. And you see adults, thankfully, are more sophisticated. <laughs> Except our hearts are the same. You know, the, the Christmas gatherings where basically the conversations are, me, 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 and I, and me, and uh, really? <laughs> me, 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 and I, and, and me. <laughs> That's interesting, but me, me, me. And everybody does it. Don't pretend it's just the places I go. You all have the same friends. It's, we're all like that. We're all self-obsessed. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And you see, the reason that the nations are at war is the same as the reason that our families are at each other's throats. Because we all live for ourselves. It's the same thing going on. This desire to serve self. And spiritually speaking, it it is what means that the world is, well, full of darkness and death. And in need of the rising sun to come upon us from heaven, verse 78. To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the path of peace. The great thing is that the coming of God into the world is like the sun rising in the darkness. And the sun doesn't just bring light, it brings peace too. Because when I stop turning in on myself and I start building my life around Jesus, I, it's like the, the, the sun's gone back into the middle of the solar system. And if we'll look to God, to Jesus, and stop trying to act like we're the, the center of the system, then the planets work, the orbits work. We stop crashing and ruining and hurting each other. Once we, once we turn to Jesus... There is peace. Peace not just with God, but with each other too. And all this happens because the Most High, the Lord, has come to the world to bring the knowledge of salvation through his tender mercy. So you see, the reason that Zacharias sings with such excitement is not that an elderly couple without children have been given a baby boy, as amazing as that is. They're filled with praise because their son John will be the one to herald the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one to herald the coming of God, the creator to his creation. Imagine if you got that, you're like, oh wow, this baby, he's going he's gonna to be the one to announce the arrival of God. Well, I'm hanging around with him. I don't want to miss this. You follow him around all the time. Out to the desert, fine. He, he lives on locusts and honey. Mm, that's okay. It's, detox whatever you know live, we, we can we can work with this and you know he goes to the jordan washes lots of people it's fine i like swimming it's all fine and you know you go through life like that and then a day comes when he says here he is the one we've been waiting for god is here only john's not pointing up he's pointing horizontally 
to a group of people and an ordinary looking Jewish bloke with the sort of calloused hands of a carpenter. And he says, that ordinary looking bloke, that's who we've been waiting for. Which just seems odd. This amazing song of praise and it all builds to, oh, the carpenter. <laughs> Underwhelming. But then that fits the pattern of the life that follows. This is a Jesus who doesn't go to Jerusalem on a war horse, doesn't wear a crown. And this is the Jesus whose great moment of triumph was, for all the world, a defeat, who brings forgiveness and life by being condemned to death. But that's the way it works with God. That's the way it works with Jesus. And we can have forgiveness, our sins dealt with, if we put our trust in this one. For God did not come as a mighty horn of salvation to destroy those who are wicked, which would leave us in terrible trouble. The mighty horn of salvation came to conquer sin by taking sin upon himself and to die in our place that you and I could be free. And that is good news. That is very good news. See, the Christian message of Christmas proclaims hope, but it proclaims hope that is real and bankable and solid, not silly and, and just trite. It's hope for out there geopolitical problems, hope for a world of terrorism and war. It's not the promise that if you put your trust in Jesus, you could never be killed in a terrorist bomb, but the promise that God is absolutely in control and that one day the Jesus who came to die on a cross will return and bring order and peace and eternal life for all who trust in him. And death no longer leads to hold fear for us. It's also an in here hope. In that if we turn to Jesus. We find forgiveness. For his death has taken our sin. We find we won't be treated as the enemies of God. To be crushed by the horn. Instead he'll treat us as friends. To be welcomed into his kingdom. And we'll find the power in his forgiveness. To deal with the bitterness. The ugliness. The indifference to others, the pettiness, the self-righteousness and pride that lurks in my heart. There is hope at Christmas because of Jesus. There is hope because of what Zachariah sang about. Hope for individuals trapped in sin that we can't break. For Jesus has died to give you forgiveness and to break the power of sin. There is hope for people trapped in, in toxic marriages and hopeless situations that have just ground us down. Here is the God who brings life and light. Nothing is beyond him. And if you can forgive me my sins, well, that is the start of transformation of any situation. Christmas has the power to change us. Not in the way we think. Um, you know, you hear the songs and the, the sort of slightly trite choruses of here's to the future, it's only just begun and Merry Christmas, war is over and nothing changes. But why would it? You know, you spend a month binge spending, binge eating and binge drinking. And the only change you are going to see is a very empty bank balance, a very large waistline and a very large number of embarrassing photos. But the Christian message of Christmas, the Bible's Christmas, Jesus is very, very different. You see, he gives not just the hope that you and I can somehow summon up the spirit of Christmas like a Disney movie and, and just solve all our problems it's not that we can elevate ourselves and reach up it's that God has reached down 
God has reached down and rescued us, brought us hope and given us life and forgiveness. Now it'll be 33 years until Jesus dies on the cross. 33 years until he rises from the grave. 33 years until forgiveness and eternal life become clearly seen historical events for us. We look back on what Zachariah looked forward to. But we wait too. We wait for Jesus to return. We wait for for the one who came and died to come back and to restore everything. Um, We had a rule as a family, my parents, I blame them for so much, and um, they're they're lovely. Um, But we had to go to church before we got to open presents. But eventually, there were three of us and two of them, and we just wore them down. It's a a good truth to know, you can just wear them down. Um, A number of parents this morning when I said that said, don't you ever tell our children. (laughs) They don't realise they can win. Um, But we, we didn't fully win, in that we were allowed to open the presents, and then we had to go to church, and then come back. Church is wonderful. Um, I don't resent going to church at all. Um, But... uh, as a child open presents and then have to go off to church and come back it is like that for us Jesus death and resurrection the presents are opened here is forgiveness here is resurrection life beyond death but it's only when Jesus comes back that we get to play with them for all eternity to enjoy them fully now we can know forgiveness now we can know the assurance that death is not the end for us but then we will experience it we'll see it we'll taste it and we'll touch it and so we can wait like Zachariah with confidence we can speak of the future in the past tense because God has acted we have even more solid reason for hope than Zachariah I love the last verse of this uh, passage. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. So, so typical of John the Baptist. He moves off the stage to allow Jesus onto the stage in the next chapter. His whole life is about that. It's not about pointing to himself. This is the John who said, I must become less, he must become greater. Everything about John is shining a light on Jesus. Because he knows what Jesus brings. And this is a great model for us this Christmas. Uh, not that we move out into the desert for 30 years, but that we, we don't seek centre stage for ourselves. But that we do seek to point people to Jesus. He is the one who brings life and forgiveness and hope. Hope in any and every situation. Hope not just for sort of Christian religious people, but hope for the world in all its brutality and brokenness. And so I urge you to to be like John the Baptist. Invite people to the carol services. Come to bring them to find out more about the Lord Jesus. And if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, you're here tonight, then let me urge you, uh, none of us here have anything special to offer. But Jesus does. Find out about him. Read the Bible. Read the Bible with the person who brought you if you came with a friend. Find out about this Jesus because he is hope. He is life. He is light. And people who know him are filled with praise. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that uh, Christmas is a message of real and lasting hope. We thank you that In the Lord Jesus Christ, you have come to us. We thank you that you have come in the mighty power of a horn of salvation who can destroy 
even the most terrifying enemies. We thank you too that when we realise that our selfishness makes us your enemies, that you come in tender mercy, dying on a cross to bring us forgiveness. Father, we pray that we would, we would know and own for ourselves this message of hope. And we pray that we would have the courage and the compassion to share it with others. Amen.